In April 2020, just as the global pandemic was kicking off, Lawrence and I started recording our weekly Friday Firesides. These are conversations broadcast live over the Crowdcast platform and joined by people all over the world who listen in and share their thoughts with us via the chat. We started these live recordings as an opportunity to keep in touch with our members, as well as process what it meant to run a business during a pandemic. Since then, we've broadcast nearly every single Friday and built up a library of over 100 episodes. We cover a range of different topics from money to meaning, pricing to purpose, vision to vulnerability, entrepreneurship to empathy, and product design to life design. This is our perspective of what it means to do business from the inside out, as well as the outside in. If you're a business hippie just like us, then you'll definitely find something of value here. We hope that these conversations inspire and motivate you to do work and build businesses that create meaningful change without burning out. Because like us, you're just wanting to make money, do good, and be happy. Buongiorno, buon pomeriggio, buonasera, benvenuti al Friday Fireside, <laughs> un podcast della Pistarfa School. I'm going to stop. Anyway, <laughs> we we are slowly um, getting ready. Um, my mum has promised not to interfere and make noise in the background, uh, and my dad <laughs> is uh, uh, preparing himself. He asked me, "He's like, you said, is this only an hour?" It's like, how long did you expect this to go on for? <laughs> why is this happening? I think this is uh, there's two reasons why this is happening. A, I'm flying solo today. Uh, Lawrence is <clears throat> caught in Devon, unfortunately. So I'm on my own, and I thought, okay, who could I talk to? I could just talk on my own, uh, I, and I'm very happy to do that for one hour, as much as many other people might not be interested in that. Um, or I could do something that I've been threatening to do for a long time, and invite my dad onto the podcast. Um, a, because we've had our mums on, and so a bit of parity to, to just make sure that they both feel equally loved. Uh, and B, um, I thought it'd be nice to have a conversation of ours kept for posterity, because I remember with Nonno, so my grandfather, um, who passed away, how long ago is it now? 2015. 2015, and he was one hundred Three, nearly 103 and i remember during that time you 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 recorded lots of conversations with him and you were trying to bring as i said under record some of his memories and his stories um and it was quite a, a connecting time as i have felt for you and, and nonno and so in, in inspired a little bit by that i thought it'd be nice to have similar kind of conversations with you uh and um, particularly from the angle of me being a dad and trying to understand what it means to be a father, particularly now in this kind of 21st century where it's it's it feels less clear-cut in what it means to be a dad and be a man, in inverted commas, and we can go into that later. So be, um, I think understanding you and our relationship more, I thought would be also helpful for me to understand how that relationship with my son and my daughter would um, can turn out uh, or how I can sort of be with that and we've had lots of conversations already uh, around this stuff and so I thought it'd be nice to, to, to do it in public to think out loud it's one of the things that we talk about a lot on our uh, Vision 2020 program in terms of have if you've got an idea and you're trying to work it out why not do it out loud uh, and see what happens because that's a great way to, to spark off new ideas and new thoughts and new insights uh, but ultimately it'd be nice to have a a little conversation with you, Dad, and and go on memory lane. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we have ever talked about to my uh, young days, so to say. You know, I don't think we have any discussion about that. You know, they were where I was. Not deep discussions. No, no. And it'd be interesting to hear. Though I, I do. You know, th there have been many times that you have told myself, Annalisa, Nick, my siblings. Um, how good we have it because when you were a kid you didn't have all the sweets and you didn't have all the 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 luxuries and comforts that we have had as children so i definitely got bits of that story but like you said it'd be nice to sort of dive a bit deeper into what what it was like 
uh, as a child and how that kind of molded you as an adult and also that there's a further story around your journey to the UK and what and the kind of winding path that it took you on and also for someone who's essentially lived a self-employed life you kind of more or less worked for yourself and you've um, been uh, what we call a company of one uh, yeah. and also that what that approach meant not only for you but also how it's also affected affected is the wrong word influenced my ideas of what work means but before we go into that story stuff and go a bit deeper um maybe share a bit and this is what i get our guests to do is like firstly how are you feeling right now how are you arriving as i call it well you know i feel i'm i just turned 80 so it's, I mean, I feel a little bit getting older. That's all. You know, you are not as alert as you could be, or as I used to be, and I'm a much slower. You know, even thinking or doing things, and uh, uh, I think that you know is palpable. You can feel it. <laughs> you know, uh, but on the other hand, you know, I turned eighty, and uh, uh, I, I I count myself to be lucky. Because a lot of my friends that I grew up with, uh, they are not with us anymore. You know, they've gone. Some, um, they became invalids or partly invalids. Uh, and uh, I'm lucky that I'm still, I would say, quite fit, you know. Uh, although it did influence me when I fell down three years ago. And, it's, uh, you know, things have changed mm. with my memory. A lot of it has been wiped away. You know, things, all things sometimes, but... By and large, I think I feel, I feel good, and I don't have pains, so I'm I'm very mm. lucky to say, compared to a lot of uh, friends and uh, people that I know. I was going to say, like you're retired at the moment. Yeah. But before that, the call, you told me that actually you've got some work that people are asking you to do. <laughs> that's right. You know, I mean, I would have been possibly working a little bit, escorting some groups uh, in Europe, even. You know, before COVID, I had some contracts. Then last year, again, uh, I was afraid more, one, two that I'd signed before, the year before, because all things had come to a standstill that people were not traveling. Museums uh, are closed still or partly closed, some of them. Uh, and therefore, but um, it's a hope that this year things will go ahead. Um, in the last, I would say, eight years, I've been doing something slightly different. Uh, I've been working for this company which do pilgrimages to holy places. And uh, this year uh, has been postponed already for the second year. Uh, this Oberammergau, I don't know if people have ever heard of this place, which is in Bavaria. And uh, actually it's connected to a pandemic. Uh, the ones that was 16... Uh, 30s in in Bavaria, but in Italy came in 1628, where so many people died. And in Germany, I would say more than 50% of the people had died. So it's something very tragic, which is connected even to what we are going through a little bit, although there are not so many deaths. And in this little village in Bavaria, they made this vow. They they cordoned themselves off. what you call in French cordon sanitaire, that they wouldn't let anybody in, you know. And uh, if you went out, don't come back in. And uh, as it happened in this village called Obramaga, which is in the, in, you know, at feet of the Alps, uh, practically near about 120 kilometers from Munich, something like that. Um, they closed themselves off, but they were inaugurating the church. So one of the a husband that had his children and the wife there managed to get in and he brought to the plague. What happened is that within a very short time, 192 people of 2,000 died, and this priest made this vow that if it would stop the plague, they would perform the Passion of Christ every 10 years. And as it happened, for some coincidence, people stopped dying. So they took as though that God had answered the prayer and the promise. And they have been doing that since that time, since 1634, every 10 years. 
during the Second World War in 1944, of course, they couldn't perform it, so they performed in 1950, 60, 70, which uh, I attended, 80, 90, 2000, 2010, you know, and... Mm -hmm. uh, and it was supposed to be 2020, but didn't because of pandemic, because of this COVID-19. And uh, therefore, they are going to, to do that this year, uh, starting in May. And uh, just uh, about 15, 20 minutes ago, I got an offer of three tours. <laughs> it was <laughs> awesome. <laughs> a little bit. Oh, my gosh. It is all around the Alps, so it's not only, of course, you do attend these in two days, you know, then you go to visit Munich, maybe Salzburg, Vienna, mm. all these places, maybe uh, Lucerne. So maybe to give some context, then, what, how would you describe your the the career that you ended up committing to? You know, I, I think what uh, influences us, or at least me, but I know of other people, is when you meet somebody. And sometimes you take a different turn. In, first of all, where I was born, there wasn't much choice. It is a pastoral place, uh, Buduzo Olbia in Sardinia. You know, when I was there, there were nine million sheep. Uh, so it's, <laughs> you know, ev every other person is a shepherd and, and all the families live together. Buduzo is on a mountain about 750 meters above sea level and 1,000 meters, so it snows. So in the winter months, they take the sheep from November to April to the seaside. So my father was away, so I would see him maybe once a month, the same as you did, that I was away shepherding people around Europe. So he wasn't there all the time, so I didn't have that strict close contact with my father, but you know, then when he came back, I would go to the sheep and obviously I learned how to milk them. I helped out to make cheese, uh, ricotta and all, you know, and, and, and butter and all these things that you make uh, and so on. So I was brought up that way, which is which is good. Uh, in Italy, in those days, you, it was compulsory when I was growing up to go to school up to age 11, five years. And that was changed after the Second World War, that he would go up to 14. But I went up to age 11. And then, um, in, in, you know, the, the, the problem is that at that point, they were not doing very well because the price of wool came down. Uh, then later they joined, you know, the European uh, common market. And then they so all these things, uh, my father thought that it was not good enough in the sense that you couldn't really, it was hard to make a living out of it because the things were not. So in any case, uh, he sold the sheep and I started working um, myself on my own by collecting, you know, cork and so on like that for a couple of years. And then I had a friend that was working, my, my cousins were builders and I worked for two years, uh, you know, as a, um, helping in a building industry, you know, bringing stones up to second, third floor, 50 kilos. And then comes the opportunity. I met a cousin of my mother who was a waiter in Switzerland. He came, you know, that was in 1960. Um, he, he came on holidays for, 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 for Natale, you know, for, for Christmas. And then he started talking and he said, well, uh, I'm going to find you a job, you know, if you don't like being here in, in Switzerland. And I thought he was joking at first, but a couple of years after that, he went back to Switzerland, uh, to Neuchâtel. He was in the French-speaking part of Switzerland. I uh, sent me a letter, he said, listen, if you want to come, anytime you want to come, you'll find a job here. Uh, I got ready, you know, within about... Uh, could say a couple of months. My mother, I must say, encouraged me as well. Uh, and uh, off I went to Switzerland. Mm. But I didn't, uh, I wasn't prepared because I had never done any schooling, you know, about uh, catering, about uh, the school. So, and I ended up in a kitchen, you know, making salads and uh, filling potatoes. And uh, But uh, I was a, a good observer. Uh, then after nine months of that, uh, although I had signed a contract, I got out of it uh, and uh, I went to, to, to 
and I was working behind a bar preparing, you know, things for the waiters, you know, and so on. So I learned a little bit. So what I was getting at is the work that you have done for the majority of your life is essentially as a tour director. And yeah. you would take groups of tourists around mm. Europe. You've also been to other parts of the world doing this kind of work. Yeah. Uh, and essentially looking after people and showing them, from your perspective, the beauty and history of Europe. Yeah. Uh, where you started off from, as, I, as the story that I remember you telling me, is that you had to leave school at the age of 11 because nonna nonna couldn't afford to just keep you at school and there was a need for you to actually work. Part of that time at that age was being a shepherd and so you would take sheep okay. out into the countryside for a good, maybe even a week or so on your own, trying to just make yeah. sure that they were fed and protected. Mm -hmm. yeah, and so true. you started off in a... Uh, quite a rural, isolated part of Sardinia, which is of, of also an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. And at some point, you had the opportunity to go to Switzerland. And this was through your cousin. Now, yeah, the question that I'm interested in is that decision to leave Sardinia. Because on one hand, like you said before, you were in a in a village where everyone knew each other it was it was like an extended family everyone was looking out for each other and I, i'm sure you had many friends and cousins who never left sardinia or even Bugazo. Yeah. No, that's true but you f you felt the need to leave what is it because that must have been quite a difficult thing to do to go to somewhere uh, not only leave your hometown but to go to a completely different country to do something you've never done before and very unknown territory to to chart what 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 pushed you to do that well i i think within you you know i we used to come down to olbia which is next to the seaside and you might ask yourself i had never been out of it what is behind that water there okay you can read uh, your little a bit of history a little bit of this about italy about these places you know we so i was uh, interested beyond sardinia in that way and i saw no port an opportunity because in the end I suppose I would have been a builder most likely because I had started and I was doing pretty well. I'd learned how to plaster a little bit out of the bricks. Uh, but it's quite hard work. No, I, I think I, I did have the ability to learn, uh, although it, up to that point it had been denied to me from the academic point of view rather because you always learn something, whatever you do in life, you know, with this manual and so on. Were you scared at all about leaving? Uh, Absolutely not. Because although uh, all of a sudden you you are cut off from uh, your language, yeah, you you go there, but you know they speak French. I didn't learn French in the school because I didn't. Uh, usually they started doing French after you know the age of fourteen in Italy. Then the languages were not taught in the basic school. So. Uh, I used to steal the book of my sister uh, because she was Antonietta, my sister. She became a teacher. She had the French. So I used to read it and I used to remember some words. Obviously, I didn't know how to pronounce them, but somehow I had that kind of ability to learn and um, and fine. So I went there. I was very much isolated, you know, except maybe for some immigrants and uh, and so on but um, so you but that wasn't too bad for me why because very often i stayed even one week seeing only a few people with the sheep you know at certain times of the year like in the so you're happy with your own company that's right i myself I was cut off from many of my friends around um, our neighborhood the reason is that my mother had a little shop and uh, her cousin was looking after me and she was uh, uh, so obsessed with cleanliness that she didn't let me play with other children because I would get dirty. So I was trying to find my own entertainment, you know, when I was three years old, four years old, and so on. And I think that also helped me, if that is the right word. When I went to Switzerland, I didn't find it too uncomfortable in the sense that I was, I'd been used to being a little bit on my own. And, and of course, I, I realized that unless you learn French, you can't get anywhere. So 
they used to make us work even 14 hours a day. You know, it wasn't very kind for 12 hours a day. It's not really the eight hours a day. And uh, I still found the energy to learn French uh, in the evening, at night and so on. And uh, how did you learn French? Uh, well, they are enrolled in a school and I would go, say, you know, three, four hours a week, something like that. And then I realized that I had to to learn Italian again because, uh, you know, but uh, learning tenses about, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> all these things. So I had to somehow uh, try to spolverare, as we say in Italian, you know, to, to, to learn a little bit more about Italian as well at the same time. And uh, they learned French. But then once uh, uh, after a year that passed, I felt ready that I should learn to be a waiter because I'd learned all a lot about uh, you know the, the name. So you were in the you were washing the dishes all the time for a year. Uh, nine months, then the other three months or so, if I remember right, uh, I was preparing uh, you know coffee. I mean, I didn't even had uh, heard the word of all these names for Coca Cola or Anchata. You know, it's all these different names that people drank in in Switzerland, which. Uh, uh, and uh, I was preparing uh, things uh, uh, for for the waiters that served the food. You, you know, in those days, you had the different stages. Uh, you had uh, uh, the service, you know, like you are a comide barasseur, comide ran, demi-chef de ran, chef de ran, and so on. You know, I've got all these different stages. So the opportunity came and uh, to become uh, a commis, a commis. And uh, I was, I think, very lucky there. I, I my, you know, um, I applied for this job, and it was in Montreux. I don't know if you are. Um, it is on the Lake of Geneva, on the opposite Lake of Geneva. I went to work uh, in this hotel, Continental, on the lake. But she said, "Oh, I need a, a commis in clusters." It was the summer, so I said, "She." I mean, I didn't have a choice. I went there, and uh, I was incredibly lucky because this lady. She was German, uh, Swiss, but she spoke very well Italian, like most Swiss do, as well as French, obviously. And uh, she took me like a kind, like a kind of son. She trusted in me that you know that I was willing to work, and uh, so I, I did the summer season of that of that in, in clusters, you know. And then she sent me to Geneva. Uh, uh, which is uh, a French-speaking part, and uh, you know, Kloster is German-speaking. So all of a sudden, I realized, oh God, you know, one is to learn also German here because in the end, you can't get anywhere. You know, so so I was doing quite well in French, and then I did also a winter season in Kloster's the winter, which I became in contact with the snow. I learned how to skate. You know, I couldn't, I didn't dare going. Uh, I would say uh, skiing, uh, not that maybe I could afford, uh, we didn't have that much time, but it was great. It was the 60s, you know, um, in spite of the long hours, we found uh, uh, how to to learn to dance uh, bossa nova and twist and all those things, you know, I mean, it was great. It was so there was a good social life then? Yeah, after you serve the people in the evening, you know, they had dinner, then you are free. And then next morning, of course, you had to get up at six o'clock to serve the breakfast. But uh, And then you had a couple of hours in the afternoon. So we did two services, but it was very hard work. But I had a, an incredible amount of energy, uh, which meant that I still found time to study a little bit as well at the same time. And uh, of course, you I mean, you are young, you know, and... Uh, uh, then I realized that uh, in the end, after that, my friend, I had this friend who passed away, fortunately, that I grew up together, was my best friend called Marino. And uh, he went to to Basel in a very good restaurant, and so did I. So I went to the best restaurant, actually, there was then in Basel, which was called Hotel Oila, or restaurant. And then we had all the people coming from La Roche, you know, from the, the camp with the Rolls Royce, from the Sibagaig, you know, it's a very rich city. So uh, I learned there to a, a higher level of uh, serving people, you know, like this Comideran, the Chef de Rang. My German wasn't good enough then. So uh, I stayed there for nine months and uh, uh, 
I was trying to learn German, you know. I liked the place. It was fantastic. But then once again, I had met somebody who had worked in Germany before, and they were working there. And they indicated to me this hotel in Stuttgart, which is not a very rich city, you know, that uh, Mercedes, Porsche is there, and Siemens is only 35 kilometers away, you know, all this big multinational. And uh, that hotel there was a, a restaurant, they had a restaurant, which was the best in Stuttgart at that point. And I wanted to be, uh, obviously, a head waiter. You know, my, my, my idea was a bit later. But then I said, oh, God, unless I speak English here, I won't get anywhere. So I started learning English there, but I wasn't getting anywhere, really. So I said, uh, well, I go to England a couple of years. I came there as a kind of uh, comédien. Then my the, the head of this uh, restaurant says, you know, Luigi, my God, I'm really impressed about your German, it's really good. And uh, I'm going to make you a demi-chef de rang. And uh, he increased my pay without me asking for it. Then after a little while, he said, my God, Luigi, I heard you taking the order. Really, you impressed me. I'm going to make you chef de rang. Really, I think now you have reached it. You know, you can organize banquets, you can do this, you can do that to the, the floors and increases my pay. So how do I feel? Great, wonderful, increases my pay. I feel well paid. I feel well rewarded, appreciated. And you try your best. But then I couldn't go much further because I didn't have the English. So I said, I must learn English. And that's why I decided to come to England, which I discovered mm. a different world altogether. I wrote to three, I wrote to the Dorchester, I wrote to the Savoy, I wrote to the Prince of Wales, and all they sent me a contract. So I chose the Prince of Wales uh, in Kensington. Why? Because they paid one pound more. It was, uh, the others were offering me 11 pounds 50 a week, and they, they offered me 12 pounds 50 a week. I mean, it sounds little, but you know, I was paying three pounds 50 for a room, near Gloucester Road. So you can imagine that £3.50 bought quite a lot. You could rent a room in South Kensington, let's put it that way, for three fifty. So anyway, I got off because I found an even a better job that I, I broke my contract with uh, uh, the Prince of Wales after nine months, I think. And I went to work in this place called the Gondoliere, which they paid £25 a week. Doubled your salary. Yeah, 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 they doubled my salary. So I did the um, manage, that was good. And and then, you know, I went on, I went to work uh, in the Garrick restaurant, which is in front of the Garrick, just behind the National Gallery there. Mm. You know, I, I worked there for, for quite a while, I think. That, oh, we have a quick question for you from Francis. Did you meet any a actors at the Garrick? Definitely, oh, yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it was the place where the actors came, and now I can't remember some name, but also... Uh, even Michael Foote who used to come there to to to, to have lunch, you know. <laughs> I, I didn't know much about politics, I must say. So uh, quickly, you said you found your dream job at the Cascrut. <clears throat> just briefly explain what does that mean, being a dream job? Uh, it was a French restaurant uh, in in the just behind the Kings Road, you know, just behind there. Uh, and then it was patronised mostly by young couples. You know, Chelsea is always a place where there is a little. It was a little bit more money so then as well, as possible as now as well. And um, uh, I used to work, to work from 6 to 12. That's it. So that meant that I had all day, all day uh, free. And I, I used to live, to live just about, say, 100 yards away from the Natural History Museum, you know, there in, in South Kensington, you know. And I became literally fascinated with art to discover my own country, which is the, the one that has got, they say, 60% of most works of art, you know, paintings are actually in Italy or somewhere painted, so the Italians. Uh, so uh, I discovered a lot and I became very interested. I started reading and, um, you know, I enrolled to do a history of art and so on. And uh, all of a sudden I also met somebody. I started doing sculpture, so I did... Uh, 
uh, you know, some sculpture. I think I've got one, the first one I ever did there. <laughs> you know, and then I even did one of your mother. I started doing a little bit of portrait. And then I found myself that uh, I met this guy who in the summer months used to escort groups in, in, in Spain. And uh, I said, uh, my knowledge was by far superior. I said, well, if he can do it, I must be able to do it as well. So they were looking for two directors or esco two escorts, they called them. Thomas Cooks, you know, as the oldest uh, tour operator in the world, literally already from the 1850s uh, with the trains. And uh, I was interviewed by this French uh, manager. He was French. And he tested my languages, you know, that uh, I spoke German. I said, because I'd learned German, I spoke French. And, uh, and I spoke Spanish as well because I found it easy to learn because my, our Sardinian language is a little bit similar to Spanish. So it, for me, was like a, very easy to learn. In any case, so he tested me and they said, uh, you know, Mr. Saba, we are really looking for people like you. <laughs> people <laughs> like you to do jobs like this? To, no, to, be, uh, to, to escort groups. Uh, and uh, so they gave me the opportunity to join them. They trained me quickly, you know, what to do, you know, how to do so on. Now, part of touring, taking people from hotel to hotel, arranging the meals and so on, was part also of my job as a waiter. And, and therefore, so I did the first season for them, uh, taking people from from England to Italy, into the French to the to the Riviera and so on and back. Then the second uh, year I worked for them, just to make it very quickly. They gave me the tour of Italy only, so I did the tours of mm -hmm. Italy. Always the same <clears throat> tour, so you knew people, you know things, and uh, and they learned more about the about the cities, you know, about from. Uh, from Venice to Rome to Sorrento to Capri to all these places, you know, that you go to that are popular uh, and so on. And, um, and it was great. After that, uh, Thomas Cooks decided to sell. It was bought by, uh, by the bank, I think. And um, then I went to American Express Vacations, which mm. I was years. And then... Uh, sometimes you have to bluff. You cannot know. For instance, uh, I worked for American Express and they literally threw me into a 38-day tour of places I'd never been to, like from uh, parts of France that I didn't... Uh, France or Spain and, uh, okay, Italy, okay, but Austria. Uh, I, I didn't... I mean, I, I'd been to Switzerland, but I didn't know... So you had to learn on the job? Yeah, yeah, learning all the time. I bought thousands of books. And you know, I remember your books. You had your books on the Bluffer's Guide to this and the Bluffer's Guide to that. Because you didn't have Google. So I mean to find a hotel in, you know, in Angoulême or in Bordeaux or, or in Madrid or Barcelona, you know, and, and so on. So you, you somehow learn all that. So it is actually uh, fascinating and sometimes if you are lucky also if you find a, a, a driver that uh, knows uh, the way and knows how to read maps too. Because, you mm. know, it's, it's quite an intensive uh, a part that they expected you to give explanations to people that, you know, about uh, whatever. So about I'm, I'm, I want to get to a point because I feel like now we've got to this stage where you found the career. Yeah, and right. this job was, was something you loved. It mean, I, meant that you could loved, travel. Yeah. And so yeah. linking it back to what you said at the beginning is in Sardinia, you would look across the sea and you were curious about what's on the other side. And yeah. now you have this job that actually takes you all over the place using all the knowledge you've got through art history and um, and history in general and this idea of also being with people. I'm curious about that choice of job. It took you, travel, it took you away from home a lot. Yeah. Um, and so there's a, one aspect of it was you loved the job. But another aspect, I think, there was around the the amount of money it made for you or the security it created for you because of it was a well-paid job compared to lots of other jobs. It was, yes. It was well-paid, yeah. And and so an element of this is like is, it's a fascinating journey. of uh, And the thing that kept on coming up again and again was like, I can only go so far if I know this much. 
And so in order to go further, you needed to push yourself to learn something new or to go somewhere new. Another element was like these opportunities that came up, these people that would present a new opportunity for you, you were very happy to take it because it was very much around, I want to go further. I think you come to a point if you, I mean, I heard you many times uh, that the way you talk to people is that they should enjoy the job. And uh, once you have found what you enjoy, then, you know, then you, you just keep it. Uh, um, I, I mean, I didn't, uh, I don't even have the personality to become a manager of, of a company or, you know, it, it takes some other. So I know my limits. I think one of the things is that you should identify your limits, you know, that you can go only so far. And if you do something well, in those days, luckily, this the job of to escorting or to managing, as it was called, was well paid. And therefore, I was able uh, to bring you up, to give you the things. So, for instance, to come to the things, why did I do that? Because I had been deprived of education, so I promised myself that whatever it would take, I would give my children the opportunity to study, to better themselves. I do believe in education because it's the key to everything, to understanding, to to grow, to, you know, all sorts of things. So therefore, to me, that was very important. And I think... I did sacrifice, and I, I don't. One can apologize, but I did it with a good intention, and I think also you. I was lucky that I found after you know I was already over 30, 33 when I met your mother. I was uh, uh, I found the person that accepted the, the situation. I did. I was pretty clear because I met her on a tour in the first place. Okay, <laughs> so therefore I tell her, I say, listen, I'm not going to change my job. I love my job. Is well paid, so why change, you know? Um, and she accepted it, and uh, thanks God that she was able to compensate my lack of being present to look after you and do whatever it took to bring you up, all the three of you. You learn also from your friends, you know, like for instance, I had a friend who got married and had a child, and then he couldn't. F- for the flat and he was working uh, three jobs to and uh, so I said no no before actually I get I must have a, a house and that's what he did we bought the house before I got married a little bit before so so what does it mean that you have a base that can work and that we learned it actually from being a, a shepherd from being that that you know things don't come out of the sky unless you are very lucky, you have to work for them. And above all, also keep them. You know. Mm. So I think I've been double lucky, um, you know, to have found your mother, the, the person that helped me to, to continue in the job which I enjoyed. And I think, I hope you appreciate yourself as a person, yourself, that you got uh, somebody like your mother that was totally dedicated to you in every possible way, and she made up for my absence many times. So, then what is my advice? Well, try to find the person, the right person for yourself, try to find the right job for yourself, which and uh, enjoy. And if you don't go up to be, I don't know, managing director of some big company, well, as long as you enjoy it, you know. It's definitely uh, the story that you followed or that you told is very much around you're always looking to grow it sounded like you're always looking to um, expand your knowledge. Um, there was also commitment to the hard work. You're very much a hardworking person. Yeah, well, I, I mean, you know, I can be a little bit lazy sometimes, certain things. On, on the other hand, I think I always put uh, priorities. Uh, I, w- to me, it didn't seem to work because I was doing the things I enjoyed. So... Mm. Or I didn't really feel that kind of uh, boredom or, you know, it's a, like the person works from nine to five, so to, to say. Very often they are looking for Friday, Saturday, they are free. One of the reasons we were talking is this idea of being a good dad. 
And so I'd be curious to hear from you what that means, uh, given your own experience of mm. being a son and also what you wished to how you wish to be as a father and whether that was something that was always on your mind. Had you a picture of what fatherhood meant to you? I think you do it by uh, imitation, is is that the right word, that you look at your father, at your grandparents, and there are people that you were close when you were young. Um, The main thing in those days was uh, the lack of things, in other words, uh, you know, the, after the war was tragic times. So therefore, one of my concerns was that I should have the means, uh, especially to look after you and educate you. And I sacrificed the amount of time, apart that I enjoyed the, the job, but I sacrificed the amount of time I dedicated to you to make sure that you would have the means to study if you so wanted. So my my priority was, yes, I must give the opportunity to my children what I lacked. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I would have done, but I was, I had a, enough talent. I remember I was one of the top three in the class. You know, they would give you a problema, you know, to this, and it was resolved even before I got out of the class. So mm-hmm. uh, that was the homework. Uh, so I knew that I had a kind of talent, but I was not allowed to develop it. So my main idea was, yes, I must. And I put that as a priority. And which uh, now, sometimes I think I've said to you, I think you are a much better father than I have been to you. The fact that I see you dedicate a lot of time to your children and you take them here and then, and you can't say that I took you. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't. But... Uh, my priorities were different, and to make also uh, safe that uh, in old age that we have enough uh, means to be able to see us through, and, and so on. So, so mm. that was my priority, really. Mm. And uh, that's the way I've been brought up, you know, and that's what I transmitted. Now, I don't really know um, your friends, yourself, you know. Of course, I loved you. I cared for you because sometimes you, although you don't might say I love you to your children directly, sometimes some people do, but you know that you care for them because you provide them, you you do things, you you know, you've been taking your children here and then. So I tried to do the same to you. You know, I think I took you to this new world. I took you, I think, to France, uh, obviously to Italy. You've been many times. You've been to the Philippines and so on. No, I, I, you know, I think this it's really... And we've talked about this quite a lot, but it's it's for me um, fascinating, and also I I totally appreciate you know you as parents we t- we try and give our children something that we might not have had ourselves. Um, uh, but at the same time, I, I'm you know I, I hope you know that I'm so grateful for what you've mm-hmm. done for me and, and and my siblings and the opportunities that we've had. And yes, there is a bit of sadness because we didn't necessarily bond as when we were young and have that time together as much as I saw other mm. kids having but yeah. like you said I know that there's love there and I know yeah. that there's there, there was care uh, and I think that for me is is part of this and part of all the conversations we have is just understanding mm. more about you know your own journey what motivated you and how that also influences me and how I'm with my children and mm. and not necessarily just being reacting to things that we don't have but also appreciating the stuff that the the, the sentiment behind it yeah i you know i can see that you followed a similar path that uh, for instance you are starting to learn something then you changed and then you changed again and i personally did the same uh not i didn't plan it i just followed my instinct and uh, you, you know and that is quite important for anybody you know to to be able to to change, to renew yourself, or I, I don't find the right word, to be able to to change your attitude to also to adapt to other situations which they are going to emerge, you know, like now and so on. But also another thing I would like to add is if you also spoil your children to the point uh, that they don't know the balance, you know what I mean, that 
certain values cannot be uh, overturned. So as long as they follow a certain path, you can be tolerant, you can be... But one is, it's not so easy to try to, to, to find that kind of balance because sometimes children are so overspoiled that then in the end they don't achieve anything at all or they think that is all due to them. If you see what I mean, I have uh, plenty of yeah. in, in in our own family and friends and cousins and so on to yeah. see spoiling uh, too much your own children, trying to be too good without, you know, showing them the borderline that you cannot mm. do certain things, yeah. but also not beneficial. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally will tell you now, even in public, I have a great admiration. I think you are doing pretty well, good job. You know, personally, I feel pleased and proud that the way you have been bringing up your children is is fantastic. I, I would say mm-hmm. it's, it's the desire of any grandparent. Anyway, personally, I see it that way, Thank and you. it's simply bravo. And I mm-hmm. hope that. Uh, and, and that's the only reason I got you on here to inflate my ego in front of everyone. <laughs> anyway, well, before we end, then um, any final thoughts? Well, my goodness, uh, you know it goes without saying. I think uh, uh, I think you are doing very well, and I hope you. Uh, I would simply say, keep up the good work, uh, because it is important that I, you know, that they are doing well. And um, I think, yeah, that's as much as you can do. Keep up the good work. Then you don't really know exactly what will happen because, as you can see, um, including me and many other people I've known, sometimes by meeting a person or something might change your life. And you are going to control at a certain point what the decisions of your children. You know, now... You have the power to advise them and possibly even stop them from doing certain things, should that be wrong. However, once they go over a certain age, you know, they they have their own mind and they make their own decisions. And hopefully the main thing is to uh, sometimes uh, that they can learn from, um, you know, from, from you, from your examples, you know, for instance, uh, I give you an example which influenced me. For instance, take that. My father, obviously, having been in the war so many times, was a smoker, very heavy smoker. He used to smoke 40 cigarettes a day. And I think I was about eight or eight years old. And he used to cough, 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 cough. Then one day, he was so upset with himself, he took the cigarettes out of his pocket and he threw them in the dustbin. And then he turned to me saying, don't ever start smoking. Now, what would an eight-year-old think of it? Nothing. When I was about 15, you know, I was starting to go out in Budusso. I became somewhat enamored with the new music, you know, from Poland. I bought myself a saxophone and started to learn how to play, you know, and so on. And obviously the girls, you know, they are, they admire starts. Yeah. And then I started, I bought a packet of cigarettes and I realized uh that uh, after one packet, I was getting uh, hooked. And uh, I flashed back to what my father had said, possibly seven, eight years before. And I said to myself, I don't really need to smoke, do I? You know, I was Mm. very before. And actually, I didn't smoke, except passive smoking in the restaurant, (laughs) which unfortunately, Mm didn't do me any good in the cast crew to like I was. There was a lot of people could smoke in restaurants. Mm. It was pretty bad. But uh, but, but to show you, sometimes a little incident in your life, uh, it might change your decision what to do. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, nobody knows whom uh, your children are going to meet, uh, the way they are going to be influenced. Mm-hmm. Okay inspired sometimes you know you take somebody to see a ballet and all of a sudden that person becomes a ballerina you know because or whatever Mm -hmm. it's a little what you whom you meet and so on i to tell you the truth i'm very happy with the things i've done i think Mm -hmm. i've had a great life uh, from that time i've worked all the time i'm still working somehow in a certain way or the other (laughs) 
and 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 uh, I suppose it's better not to speak because otherwise we're going to you know cross lies. <laughs> And well. that's the last thing I would like to have to be, you know, be fossilized. I hope I don't lose too much of my mind. You know, that's all I can. <laughs> well, well, let's see. Fingers crossed. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, there's, like you said, once our children get to a certain age, and I'd, I'd say most of the time we don't necessarily, can, can, we can't control what they do and how they think, but we can influence through yeah. our own, I think, behavior and uh, and our values and and the way we turn up and the way we behave yeah. i think at some level that that comes across and just to say you know one of the things that i definitely know i've inherited from you is a sense of discipline and being able to make decisions and commit to something uh, and push through and I, I appreciate that and i value that uh, and it's something that again many things that we inherit in terms of behaviors and and, and patterns yeah which I think are useful and sometimes not always useful, but that's okay as well. So yeah. thank you very much, Zad. Yeah, and thank you, Mum. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank her as well because she did a yeah. lot of the job. I well, she, she, she had her turn last year, so it's okay. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much, everyone. For everyone who persisted, I'm so glad. Oh, look, there's loads of messages of thanks coming, so okay. you, you enjoy that. Thank you very much, everyone. Ciao mamma, ciao babbo. Buona giornata, buona pranzo. Alla prossima. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Happy Entrepreneur Podcast. To hear more inspiring conversations like this, follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search for the Happy Entrepreneur. In March, we'll be launching Tribe 7 of our Vision 2020 program. If you're at a point in your career or entrepreneurial journey where you're asking yourself, what next? And you need the clarity and confidence to make some bold decisions about a new direction, then this program is for you. We'll help you define what success really means to you, understand the impact that is yours to make, make sure your mission is both energetically and financially sustainable, and also learn how to build a supportive community around yourself. We want people who are driven to do good in the world and are tired of trying to do it on their own. We'll share the key lessons we've learned while building the Happy Startup School and pivoting from the stressful peaks and troughs of agency life to a life of freedom, adventure, service and connection. We value learning, play and friendship and we'd like to help you discover the values and the work that align more to who you are. Don't struggle alone and don't get sidetracked by other people's measures of success. Discover for yourself what it means to create effortless impact. To apply for the next tribe, go to vision.happystartups.co. We look forward to hearing from you.